Hi everyone, welcome back to MHTA The Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Awa, and today we are talking about caring and intersectionality. And I am joined with the lovely Lisa. Hi Angela, thanks for having me. Lisa is a grants assistant at Paul Hamlin Foundation, supporting the Shared Ground Fund and Ideas and Pioneers Fund. She previously worked at Nesta as a project coordinator for EU-funded projects focused on research and innovation tackling societal challenges across Europe. Prior to that, she worked at an education charity focused on embedding global education in English classrooms. Following on from teaching in Hong Kong, Lisa completed a postgraduate diploma in education and international development from the Institute of Education, UCL, and has a BA in English literature from Queen Mary University. She is also a long-term volunteer at the Migration Museum, and she's also a trustee at Mental Health the Arts. Thank you, Angela. So happy to be here. It is absolutely lovely to have you. I'm sure that today people will have just a snippet of what our conversations are like. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I hope that they take something away. So we're talking about intersectionality today. um, And I actually became quite fascinated with the term intersectionality on my master's um, and wrote about it in one of my exams. Um, which is a strange way of, you know, finding being passionate, finding out that you're passionate about, you know, a, a word or a term, societal term. Um, but essentially, it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and it's a framework of conceptualizing a person, group of people, or social problem as affected by a number of discriminations and disadvantages. It takes into account people's overlapping identities and experiences in order to understand the complexity of prejudices that they face. Um, so I'll explain a bit about like what it means to me and kind of like how caring comes into play. So... I guess um, I'm a black young woman living in the UK. Um, My parents originated from Ghana, so I have Ghanaian heritage. Um, But I also found that some of the problems or discriminations I could have faced is like, so for one, like living in poverty, um, you know, facing um, sexism, racism. um, And then also like being someone who was born in Britain, but I'm not originally from here and having those intersectional identities between like my Ghanaian heritage or identity and my British identity. Um, And obviously that played a role in my caring experience um, and kind of like exposed the stigma and discrimination of mental health, not just in the UK, but also from back home. And so um, I find it, I found it at times during my experience of caring that I found it really hard to, share some of my experiences because I don't know how people are going to respond. Um, and so that's kind of like just a snippet of what, how intersectionality comes into play when it comes to like my experience. So I thought I'd ask you, Lisa, uh, what does intersectionality mean to you? Um, I feel like I could relate to the intersection that you described for yourself, mm-hmm. obviously apart from coming from Ghana because yeah. I am not from Ghana. <laughs> I am Hong Kong Chinese, mm-hmm. um, British, and grew up very working class. Um, North London, working class town, uh, predominantly white working class, actually. Mm-hmm. And 
yeah, also experienced, I mean, racism, (laughs) sexism, um, yeah, pretty, pretty much for most of my childhood and adult life. Mm. Uh, But intersectionality is such an important lens to look at uh, the inequalities and systems that have been created to oppress Mm. marginalized groups. And it's about, I think intersectionality is about accepting the fact that you can never understand somebody else's experience of something. Right, yeah. Fully. Yeah. Which I think just creates or should create much more richer relationships and conversations mm-hmm. because they these conversations need to take place in order to try and understand what other people are experiencing yeah. at the intersection that they exist at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so important. Um I think you were speaking about like the richness of relationships, if I'm correct. And like I find that if people were more understanding of the difference that we had, that even institutions would benefit from it, from being effective when providing a service, mm-hmm. um, whether that's from a government level or to, you know, just a small business, basically, or small charity. Um, I kind of want to ask, um, do you think it had a major part to play in your caring experience and feel free to like share about, you know, what your caring experience has been um, in the past. Cause I think that's something that when I first had a conversation with you, I was like, Oh my days, like <laughs> these are, this, this is literally my life, but from South Asia, this is my life, but Lisa's from Hong Kong. That's the only difference. <laughs> we bonded over trauma. <laughs> imagine like in the 21st century how can we bond over trauma but anyways there's there's a a reason for everything but I'm gonna um leave it to you to kind of explain parts of your journey as you please and then also speak about how culture and intersectionality affected that Mm, um I have to preface uh what I'm about to share um with the fact that I was (sighs) I would say I was a carer, you know, solidly for maybe uh, four, five, six years Mm. when I was young. And um, it's been a long time since then. Yeah. You know, because thankfully, um, I'm going to talk about my mum who was diagnosed with schizophrenia when I was 20. Um, You know, thankfully, she is much healthier and yeah better and I don't have to worry about her mm. every day like I used to um but it's the 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 running up to her diagnosis mm. uh ever since I was you know possibly as young as four or five yeah it was very evident to me that my mum was suffering from something which the doctors couldn't diagnose and over the decades it would her mental health problems would fluctuate they would morph from one thing to another mm. and it was quite um she, she was quite an angry individual yeah which made it very hard for me to feel safe mm-hmm. and to feel like i could bond with her like you would imagine a parent particularly a mother yeah would with 
with a child. So yeah, I guess I guess I when I was thinking about how to share this experience of of being a carer when I was young, I I came across um or I I did come across before the idea of migration trauma. Mm. And I think that really answered a big question that I, I'd always asked in thinking about why my mum was so unhappy mm. and she suffered so mentally, she suffered so much. And then that led to her, you know, um, it led to physical damage and physical harm. Mm. So I guess to start off from the very beginning, just to give the listeners a bit of context is um, my mum married my dad when she was 21. Um, my dad is from Hong Kong. My mum is from Guangdong in China, mm-hmm. which is very close to the border to Hong Kong. So they come, they both of them came from pretty much the same culture. They, they, they spoke Cantonese, they spoke Hakka, which yeah. is a dialect. Um, and then my dad brought my mum over to the UK uh, when she was uh, 21 and then they got married and then she had me when she just turned 23 mm. and she is a village girl. She grew up in a really tight-knit community in China. Yeah. So imagine coming to this country, not speaking the language, uh, definitely not enjoying the food. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, she didn't have any of her friends, any of her family who she was incredibly close to. Mm-hmm. And when she had me, um, I think she experienced uh, bleeding or something. And apparently the doctor botched up the, the uh, what would you call it? That procedure? The procedure, yeah, when they had to sew her mm-hmm. back up, um, which led to her having to be in the hospital for longer than she would have done. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the pressure of running a takeaway business, um, having to work literally 24, um, not 24, seven, seven days a week, having to work seven days a week whilst being a a completely new mum without your community with you and having to find the time to try and heal. Mm. Uh, And there was no time for that really. So she developed postnatal depression yeah and that over the years that snowballed to um i would say manic depression mm-hmm. um and then paranoia insomnia um and then finally when i was 20 she um so she had uh she was having hallucinations and quite grandiose thoughts yeah uh, and she harmed herself i was downstairs in the living room mm-hmm. Um, and she was upstairs. I hadn't heard from her for two hours. So I went upstairs to check on her and she'd, she tried to harm herself to stop the voices. Mm. And so I called the ambulance. I called my dad to come home from the takeaway. Um, and we went straight to the hospital Yeah, uh, where she was sectioned for about two weeks. Um, it was, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. The sad thing is, whenever I think about her being sectioned, is this nagging feeling of of feeling like I didn't do enough, mm. and I 
I can still see her being taken away by the hospital staff, mm. literally dragging her to the, uh, I guess, isolation room. Yeah. And being quite rough, but she was also being very resistant to... Yeah, of course. No, of course. Yeah. Um, she, she was not, I mean, she wasn't well. She was yelling stuff like, mm. you're, the, you're the devil and you're trying to, you know, um, yeah. kill me and those sort of really disturbing things. And despite being 20, you know, a full-grown adult, I still felt incredibly helpless. I didn't mm. know who to turn to. My dad comes from a really conservative culture. Mm-hmm. He's always been, you know, man of the house, yeah. main breadwinner. Never, ever. We never spoke about mental health. Mm. And that really didn't help with the situation mm. because I felt like I couldn't go to him. Right. for any comfort or any support because he didn't know where to go to Mm. for support. Yeah. Um, And so I ended up feeling, uh, the day that she she was sectioned, I just felt incredibly small Mm. and incredibly useless, Mm -hmm. probably because I was in the house and I I just kept telling myself, if only I checked on her sooner. Mm. But by that point, it had been about four years of her behaving like this or showing symptoms of schizophrenia and I was just tired Mm. and I just needed some some time to myself yeah yeah that that's pretty much the diagnosis that's how it happened Mm. there's a lot that you said that that I can totally relate to specifically like that guilt that you feel when you feel like you should have done something sooner but at the same time it's like acknowledging that you didn't know what to do like there was just no resource there was no access to resources that exactly you know being 20 you're still in my eyes you're still pretty much a teenager like there's still things I, you're discovering I didn't feel like an adult at all exactly it's so out of my depth exactly and so I'm saying like it's it's so relatable because I remember that feeling and you're just like, excuse my language, like, crap, how am I meant to move forward from this? I, I totally relate to that. And there's other things that you mentioned. When we're talking about intersectionality and, for example, you speaking about your mum being sectioned, essentially everything around her, and like it was with my mum, is different. It's not something they've experienced before. And when you've been brought up in a certain type of way and you're experiencing something like mental ill health, it's all something that is seen as out of character. And then when you have systems like psychiatric hospitals or doctors that come to take your parent away, like it's happened with both of us, it's like, how do you even expect them to respond? Because they don't know what's happening to them. They they feel like they're fighting, everybody's against them. So they have to fight everyone for their own sanity. So I can I can definitely like relate on that label on that level and it's definitely not easy to even speak about it so I commend you for your bravery and your courage because what you shared is actually so raw to the touch still like you speaking about it helps me understand and helps me acknowledge the migration trauma that my mum could have faced when she came from Ghana like similarly like 
okay, so my mum wasn't in her early 20s. She was 29 when she came, which is literally the same age I'm going to be this year, which is crazy. She came for the first time without no family members, no community. And when you're used to that community, imagine going across the channel to a completely different place that is urban to the mm-hmm. to the core, essentially, and then having to figure out your life by yourself. And then she met my dad. And then like within a year, they had me. So it's like, there's so much that they don't have. They don't have that tight-knit community. They don't have the support systems that they would normally have to support them. And then on top of that, with your parents starting a business, essentially, it's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah, it's a huge amount to take on. And actually, recently, I convinced my parents to take part in a PhD interview. Mm. Uh, Somebody at King's College is doing a PhD on migration stories. Yeah. And I convinced them to take part just to at least encourage them to share their stories because Mm. (laughs) their usual response when I ask them to share their migration experience is, oh, no one's going to be interested in what we experience because you know it's just life yeah and in the interview my mom actually for the first time I heard her say she regrets in some ways having a child so young Mm. obviously she was she was too naive she was so green Mm. but she wished she had more time to adjust yeah to adjust and to develop her own interests or gone to learn English properly Mm. before you know starting this absolutely brand new alien life uh, which has caused her so many issues over the years Mm. Um, and in many ways I think she's still healing healing right what's your take on it like how 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 has that affected you because you mentioned prior that you just felt tired was it similar was it different yeah it was it was so long ago Mm. I think I I wonder if my mind's blocked out Mm -hmm. some of that time Mm -hmm. because it was definitely traumatic Mm -hmm. I actually (laughs) I when my mum was sectioned I don't know why I'm laughing but when my mum was sectioned I was actually in the middle of a relationship with someone Mm -hmm who my parents had no idea existed. Mm-hmm. And I think that relationship took place because I needed support and care from another source. Someone else, yeah. Who was not involved in what was going on mm-hmm. and who cared for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, it you know, it, it happened when it needed to happen. My mum was sectioned. She decided to fast, mm-hmm. uh, which made it, all the more stressful so uh we became christian as a family when i was 15 Mm -hmm. and actually it was almost a year later she started showing symptoms of schizophrenia Mm. i think um i think it's important to include this the fact that we did go to church we were practicing christians um specifically evangelical Mm -hmm. Christianity so a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit at the time Mm -hmm. my gift was uh, prophecy yeah and my mum just jumped on that (laughs) because she was so immersed in her faith yeah she wanted guidance she wanted comfort 
she wanted to feel safe. So I can understand why Christianity, specifically evangelical Christianity, had a, a possible influence in how her schizophrenia and her mental health became more severe. Mm. Despite being part of the church, I did not feel we were supported mm. in any way. They, The church leaders did say to my mum, you know, you should go to the doctors, you should listen to them, you should take your medication, yeah. uh, but continue to pray. And I think there, there's, no, there's no blame here. Mm-hmm. But I think because it was uh, a Chinese church, there was even less of an opportunity to talk about mental health. Mental health is still a taboo in a lot of East, Southeast Asian communities yeah. and cultures. I think it's, it's a lot better now. Mm-hmm. But only because I believe, you know, the people, the children of the parents who suffered mental health are now older, like myself. Yeah. And we now understand the importance of talking about mental health problems and sharing and being more open about the challenges that mm. many of us experience. I felt incredibly isolated. I didn't feel like I could talk to my friends about what happened to my mum, mm. despite the fact that we'd grown up in the same youth group together. The only real tangible support I recall was from the mental health mental health worker or visitor okay. yeah. that came to see my mum every once a month just to check, check up on her. I remember him. He was called Emmanuel. He was so patient and so gentle. Mm. That was so refreshing in such a chaotic time in, yeah. in, our, in our family life. But that didn't last long at all. I think that was maybe like six months. And then it was a matter of just trying to stay as sane as I could in the middle of my degree. Mm whilst helping at my parents takeaway because obviously my mum couldn't help yeah it was it was a very strange very isolating time I totally understand and sympathize and empathize with you especially because I've gone through a similar experience um I kind of want to pick up the point on religion essentially and so from that experience has it changed your perception of religion? Let me try and tie it back to what we're talking about. So mm. so you speak about you going to an evangelical church, a Chinese one, to be precise. And then, so I'm already thinking about, okay, there's different layers to this. And then the taboo of speaking about mental health, their response to your mother being unwell. Like, where does that sit in your mind? Like, what is your perception as a result of that? Obviously, it may have changed, but as a result of that, how do you think your perception of religion has been like? And has it helped you heal or has it not helped you heal? Specifically, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm struggling to answer this because mm. I, my relationship with my faith has definitely changed. Mm-hmm. I think what happened to my mum and the my church's response definitely changed my relationship and how I perceived and practiced my faith. Mm. I I was still a very f- uh, faithful Christian, despite what happened to my mum. It was really difficult, though, to 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 continue believing in the God that I believed for so long because Mm. my mum's schizophrenia was absolutely impacted by Christian faith. Mm. 
because she was having hallucinations and such grandiose ideas about Satan and Mm-hmm. devils and god and she had those grandiose ideas of the fact that she was the one mm-hmm. she was chosen mm. to change other people's lives mm-hmm. she had a core role to play yeah uh in in events and and i think i can understand in a way why she why her thoughts went swayed that way mm-hmm. because she felt she felt so lost for so long Mm. and she is absolutely somebody who loves to help people she loves to get to know her community and to bond with people because that's that was her that was her entire childhood Mm. and when she migrated here that was all gone christianity has definitely helped me to heal it actually two years after my mum was sectioned and she returned home and we tried to live as normal a life as possible yeah i left the uk to go to hong kong and i couldn't have done that without feeling confident that god was going to look after my mum and make sure that she was okay mm. whilst i was away mm. i think i realized remaining in london with my parents wasn't doing me any favors mm. in terms of personal growth it was during the recession so employment yeah. was really difficult and my mum's health seem to have uh, stabilized lots of different factors that made me decide that helped me to decide that it was it would be good for me to go to Hong Kong and to just I guess try and put things in perspective for for myself and my parents because I I'm also an only child for a lot of my life you know it being just me and my parents we've we've had a very tumultuous relationship mm. Um, there's the culture clash, there's the language barrier. Yeah. You know, it's it, it makes every conversation, especially if you're going to talk about mental health, really difficult and really painful. And when I went to Hong Kong, I joined a large international church, evangelical again, and I made some amazing friendships and people that I'm still friends with to this day. But also living in Hong Kong, it made me realize so many people were suffering from mental health problems, yeah. but it was an even bigger taboo. It was so evident just yeah. traveling on public transport and seeing people just lose it mm. over the smallest things. Maybe somebody accidentally touched them or bumped into them mm. and they would just throw an absolute tantrum and no one would bat an eyelid. Uh, it was really strange to witness on a regular basis. Yeah. But that was the the high pressured environment that people uh, exist within in Hong Kong because yeah. it's incredibly competitive. There's really next to no welfare benefits. Mm. It's the most expensive city to live in in the world. So it is pretty much dog eat dog. And living in Hong Kong, socializing within an evangelical Christian church, which was which was still conservative mm-hmm. in many ways, made me realize actually maybe this isn't what's good for me. I still couldn't find the spaces where I could be open about my mom's schizophrenia, yeah, my experience of mental health problems as well. Mm-hmm. It all still had to uh, be kept under the surface so that yeah. everything looked great on, from the outside. Mm-hmm. So then I, yeah, that's when I decided to come back to London after two and a half years in Hong Kong. I've, I've watched lots of documentaries about how people with mental ill health are treated in um, 
in parts of Africa, mostly West Africa, and I've also seen it in some Asian countries as well. And I've seen the stigma and the connection it has with, you know, Satan and witchcraft and stuff like that. And that sometimes, and when I did used to watch those documentaries, would, like, grip me with fear of knowing that, like, if my my situation with my mum being ill with paranoid schizophrenia has happened in Ghana, it would have been something complete, even more traumatic than it was in the UK because of the stigma and because of, you know, like the attachment to things such as witchcraft and just knowing that she may not have been treated as a human being mm. because of the lack of human rights and the connection it has with, you know, um, voodoo and all manners of things. So, yeah, um, I guess I would love to know, like, if if you had thought about your situation in China, what that would have been like? So specifically speaking, um, Hong Kong doesn't... Hong Kong operates differently from uh, China. Yeah. It's... So it's a... It's an SAR, a uh, special administrative region. Mm-hmm. Now it's very different mm-hmm. um, because of the recent uh, passing of the national security law, uh, which means the Chinese government have a lot more influence and say on how Hong Kong government is run. Yeah. But back when I was living in Hong Kong, it was definitely still incredibly westernized and democratized. And and I think if what happened to my mum had happened in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. I would like to think that she would have been given the proper medical care. And it may have been easier because it's it's her people, yeah, her culture, her language. Yeah. That was actually quite evident when she was sectioned in London. The fact that there were these big white English men. Yeah manhandling her and you could see the fear in her eyes you could see the confusion you could see the anger Mm. and I think that definitely you know part of the reason why I felt so helpless there was nothing that I could have said Mm. that would have comforted her and yeah I think I I would like to think she would have been taken care of properly in Hong Kong um but if I was to imagine her having the breakdown, the the psychosis in actual China. I don't know much about how they treat mental health patients in China. Mm. China is a huge country um, and every province has its own policies Mm. and governance. But I don't think she would have been treated as well uh, because I struggle to talk about mental health with my own relatives in China. Mm. I mean, I rarely see them. I rarely get to speak to them. But I've grown up my entire life uh, knowing about them and their their jobs and their interests. And, yeah. you know, family WhatsApp group. I get updated <laughs> <laughs> on what's going on, like all the important stuff. Yeah. And mental health has never, ever, ever made an appearance in any conversation. Mm. Uh, and I actually, I specifically remember my mum never telling her parents or her siblings about what was going on with her health, yeah. with her mental health. Same. Because she didn't want them to worry. Mm-hmm. But that also meant essentially lying to them. 
<laughs> in every phone conversation when they ask, how are you? How's your health? Because they're, they were aware that she was unwell when she had me. Mm. They knew it, it caused lasting effects on her health, but it was all very, very vague. Yeah. Uh, so they were always somewhat worried and concerned, but my mum never let on that she was so unwell. And mm. I think that adds pressure to her, her to her and my dad to constantly have to present this really happy united front mm. to everybody else particularly within their family and their social, uh, social circles it it totally makes sense because i know um like whenever my mum was on the phone to her family like to our family back home it was like, yeah, I'm fine. And there's this obviously this kind of thing, perception from their side that, oh, my sibling has moved to, and oh, my daughter has moved to a better place. So essentially everything should be better. You should be happy. You have all the money in the world. Like you're just the richest person. So how then can you even think about, you know, coming to us and telling us, oh, I've gone through this? Because yes. that's not what they think that the Western, they think the Western world or America is just this dream world where everything is given to you. <laughs> you especially know, to especially back, in, back in the 80s. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I can't even imagine like, and I think similarly, I couldn't imagine their rea- what their reaction would be like if you're like, actually, this is what's really going on because they would have been like, come back. <laughs> Your yes. life is much better here. Come back. Yes. Um, and similarly, like with my mum, it's always been a thing where she's like, I want to go back because here is foreign. This is a foreign land. And, you know, they've had from my mum in particular, like she's had us three and she's just like, OK, it's time for me to go and relax at home. <laughs> like there's no more. I don't need the stress of Western society anymore. I don't need it. My parent, my children have all grown up. So, um yeah, it's the whole like facade thing that I'm like, I don't know if I could do that, but I can also understand because I'm not as open to my parents about some of the f- issues I faced in my own personal life. So if I'm not careful, then it's pretty much going to be the same cycle again, where mm. if I'm struggling with something, as I have done in numerous years, um, I would always say I'm fine because I don't want to worry them. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's sad that you feel like you have to behave in that way because you don't want to worry Mm. your parents. Um, But recently I've somehow found the courage to be open about my mental health problems um, with my parents Mm. Um, because we never discussed it as a family. Yeah. They were completely oblivious to what was going on in my own mental health yeah Mm. and particularly with what what's happened with the pandemic Mm. yeah um I was clearly showing signs of depression Mm. I went on the NHS website and I did their test and it was you know pretty much yeah confirmed Mm. (laughs) my symptoms um and I had to be honest with my parents mm. because I just felt like our tradition of hiding away problems 
did not serve us as a family. Yeah. It certainly did not help my mother's health in any mm. way. And it was really difficult just to get the conversation going. Yeah. Because they both had fixed preconceptions mm -hmm. of what mental health looks like. Yeah. And the strange thing is, despite my mum having had paranoid schizophrenia, she can't understand <laughs> why I'm depressed. Mm. She or both of them made suggestions of like, don't think so negatively. Just think positive thoughts. Mm. Uh, try singing. You feel better. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you serious? You went right. through schizophrenia. Right. <laughs> you know how hard it is to for people to understand what you're experiencing. Yeah. And even harder to listen to unsolicited suggestions and advice from people who have no no understanding of what you're experiencing mm. uh, that was a very strange response but um they finally did listen and they are at least much more aware and sensitive that's amazing i'm so glad that like you've had that opportunity or you've created that opportunity or you've essentially just gone to them and be like this is what i'm going through I think it will take a lot for me to do to get to that stage. Um, honestly speaking, just because I've seen how like mental ill health has played out in both my parents um, at different stages of their life, and I'm just like, yeah, I I feel like if I tell you, like, it might trigger, and mm -hmm. I don't want to trigger. I think that's the main thing, like not triggering them, and then also I think in in of myself, I've created my own support system so instead of my parents I'll speak to my fiance because that's just easier for me and I just feel more comfortable doing so maybe one day I might tell them but I think when I'm like rich and famous <laughs> then I'll let them know <laughs> then I'll you let them up, know you open yeah. up to them in an Instagram post <laughs> <laughs> but it's so interesting because like so my dad has heard me speak about some parts of like our journey with my mom and stuff like that at, at an event. And he, so he knows that I speak about this stuff, but he just doesn't know the effect that it's had on me. And cause again, because I'm, I've always been, Oh, I'm going to look after everyone else first before myself. So I just completely skip over my own life issues and just make sure that everyone's okay. But I'm learning, I'm learning like that I need to communicate a lot more about how I feel um when a situation is traumatic to me or has just affected me um in a bad way and in a good mm -hmm. way actually so yeah I'm I'm on that journey slowly slowly <laughs> yeah I mean you've touched on self-care and I think in particular within uh east and southeast asian culture mm. um filial piety is still a significant part of our culture, mm. uh, which is, you know, the children are expected to look after the adults, the adults, yep. the parents, the grandparents. And yep. that is the ultimate act of love. Yeah. But what has happened is I think we, we've ended up sacrificing uh, self-love and self-care. Mm. And that is not sustainable. No. <laughs> it's not 
that's so interesting. Like, the whole children looking after adults thing has been... I'm a bit of... I have a bit of a rebellious trait in me, should I say. <laughs> yeah, you do. I do. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's reassurance for anybody listening. Um, so... Anytime people have said that to me in the past, like when I was younger, I was just like, no, my parent has to look after me, like until, you know, they're old and then I'll look after them. But it wasn't until my situation happened that I, that I realized that, wow, this for me and for you also happened much sooner. And I just didn't expect to carry this much responsibility in my early 20s. Um, so, yeah. Even now, still, I'm like, I think I've, I'm not as rebellious as I was before, but I'm very much like, because I've had to do what I've, I've had to care and I've had those responsibilities for such a long time, it's very even, it's hard for me now to be like, oh, my parent, parents should look after me because I'm older now and I've matured and I have a different perception of how life is because of those experiences that I had in my teenage years and my 20s. Um, so I'm, I'm much more open to looking after my parents. <laughs> it's because you've mellowed. <laughs> what did you say? Because I... You've, you've mellowed. Oh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> slightly, slightly. Just just a tad. <laughs> I was going to ask, um, based on your experience um, with caring and even going back to Hong Kong um, and just looking at the multiple identities that you have, if anybody was in a similar position to you, what advice would you give them? Such a great question. I would say somehow find your own people. Mm. Find the people who you feel safe communicating all of this trauma to. Mm. because this is deep pain yeah yeah and you have to find those safe spaces um and the right people to hold you Mm. um whether that's online or offline find reliable resources I think you know now it's very different from you know when I was younger as a teen Mm -hmm. It you know the topic of mental health is much more uh, widely spoken about. Mm-hmm. There's far less taboo around it. Yeah. Um, but there is still some controversy around it within you know East and Southeast Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. So it might feel incredibly daunting to find. Um, those safe spaces on your own when perhaps your family and close friends aren't interested Mm. in hearing your experiences of being a carer. Yeah. But it's even more isolating if you continue to suffer in silence. Mm. And I think one of the most important things is what we touched on earlier is to take self-blame out of it. Yeah. Never blame yourself for not having done enough or done the right thing because in a way it it has nothing to do with you Mm. somebody else's mental health is essentially their problem and their issue and (laughs) children 
aren't professionally trained yeah. to take care <laughs> of their parents yeah. with mental health problems. For real. You need professionals for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and specifically on uh, filial duty and care, I think it is a beautiful thing. I believe in intergenerational mm-hmm. care, mm-hmm. but not at the expense of your own mm. health and sanity. That's so good. I'm not even going to add anything to that because she's given me advice. I'm taking all of this <laughs> with me. Um, but you made like so many good points um, in terms of advice. Like, yeah, if anybody's listening and you're going through a similar situation, like definitely take Lisa's advice on board. I can't say anything any better than the way she's explained it, honestly. Um, Angela, is it okay to mention a couple of organizations that might be helpful of course go for it there's a handful of organizations um i think it might be most useful if you're in london but i think there are a couple of online ones so the first one in london is the london chinese community center who are based in soho Mm -hmm. they have a health and well-being clinic i think they were offering free therapy sessions oh great over the pandemic but um i don't know if that's continuing but they obviously they have a well-being clinic so if english isn't your first language then go to them mm. they should be able to help you there's also the um sources on there there's a whole channel on mental health and everyone is welcome uh to share their experiences and then there's one last one yeah who are based in Edinburgh, Racism Unmasked in Edinburgh. They're on Instagram. And if you are suffering from any mental health issues, you're welcome to message them and they should be able to signpost you. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm definitely definitely going to leave the links below so anybody can click on the links and have access to the websites um that you mentioned it was great having you today lisa like thank you for sharing your story your journey and great advice with us today if anyone has any questions or would love to chat feel free to contact us via our social media which is twitter and instagram at mhta underscore ldn or our website is www.mhta-ldn.org we'd love to hear from you